At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. Uh, If you have your Bible, you uh, would open it up to Matthew 18. That would be excellent this morning. That's where Ethan read for us just a few minutes ago and where we're going to dive in. Uh, together. So Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. A few weeks ago, I took our, uh, our staff team um, together as we're, we're really kind of new together as a staff team um, as a whole and uh, took us uh, to a faraway place um, for, uh, for an intense day, uh, the faraway place being Royal Oak, uh, by the way, uh, but a faraway place to spend a day together getting to know each other better and, and uh, spend some time building team uh, and team chemistry together and to spend some time in prayer and just thinking about what we would desire and hope for our future as a church to look like and to be. And, and so as we spent the day to, together having a lot of fun and also uh, just deeply getting to know each other and, um, and doing this exercise, we began to ask, what would, that, what would Woodside Bible Church in Plymouth look like by God's grace in five years? When we come to the, uh, to the end of uh, this decade, 2029, what, what, would a, what could God do here in our church, and what would that look like? And so we began to talk through some of those things and make some dreams and, and just aspire and go, wow, wouldn't it be incredible if this happened or that happened? And as we were in the conversations, one of the things I turned to just to make us aware of that is I, I asked us the question, well, what, what threats exist that would, would prevent these things from happening? What, what, what situations or realities are out there that could, could take us down? And we begin to list a few things that are potential threats uh, against uh, the church and against really our, our local congregation as well. And, and just a few of them that came up were things like secularism. We look at just the world and, and how, uh, how it's walking away, at least in the United States, there's a, a cultural drift away from uh, some of the values and virtues and character that, that in prior generations has been there uh, in, in, the, in the people of this country. And we say that drift in secularism could, could invade and impact the church as well. Doctrinal compromise was mentioned, that we could, we could find ourselves hedging against what is true and right, what the scripture says in our doctrine and our teaching, and that could be a significant threat to the church. Moral collapse, moral failure, us not walking in integrity and in alignment with who God calls us to be and the high standard of character that is there for for leaders and for um, the people of God's church together. We mentioned persecution from the outside world as being a threat that could cause our dreams and desires to, to be done away with, but one threat in particular deeply stood out to me. And and. While I think all those other threats should be identified and known, I believe that the biggest threat, the threat of what I'll call friendly fire, could take us down in a more uh, quicker way, in a more significant way than any of the other ones. When I, when I talk about friendly fire, I'm, I'm talking about internal conflict. 
the, the, the relationships that we have with one another, the, the way that we respond to and treat and care for or don't love and care for and respond well to each other. While we want to have a church full of unity and love, the reality is that we are a community of sinners. Every one of us, even though we may profess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, even though we may believe that we are, de- uh, we are delivered from sin by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and even though we believe that we are made alive by the Holy Spirit and given new hearts and new affections and new desires, we are still in a battle. That battle exists within our own flesh. We still have a nature inclined towards sin and and a desire of flesh still exists. And so it's true that when you still put two or three together, two or three even Christians together, eventually what will happen is that passions and desires and preferences will all rise up and conflict will come. Division will happen. Sinners will sin against one another. And it's Jesus who said that one of the most attractive and compelling and beautiful testimonies to the world at large is the church being known for their love for one another. It's what the apologist of the late 20th century, Francis Schaeffer, called the final apologetic. Jesus said, they, the world, will know that you are my disciples by your love for each other. And so when the world doesn't see a church that loves one another, that cares for one another, that, that, is, that is deeply for one another, working out its life together, the world can ask the question, is, it, is this really true at all? But the church that is full of true Christ-like love for one another and for outsiders, I believe, is a very magnetic place. I believe that there is, in this season in particular, a deep need for us as a church to reorient ourselves to Jesus' teaching about our relationships with one another. Specifically, how should we as followers of Jesus Christ handle relationships, especially when there's conflict? Our culture's default position is to cancel each other. I mean, that is just the way of the world right now, just to be done. It's to eliminate or to remove the relationships that have wounded and hurt us. I think it's the great prophetess of our age, Taylor Swift, who articulated our lived solution so well when she reflected on one of her own situations. She sings this. I'm not going to sing it, by the way. That's not my wheelhouse. How many days did I spend thinking about how you did me wrong, wrong, wrong? Living in the shade you were throwing till all my sunshine was gone, gone, gone. But then something happened one magical night. I forgot you existed. How often is that our solution and response when there is hurt and conflict in our own lives? She sings, I forgot you existed. It wasn't love. It wasn't hate. It was just indifference. But is that the way of Jesus? for his people who will live with him and be with him and with one another forever and ever? I mean, when we get to heaven with other believers, will we get to say, I forgot you existed? That's why we're calling this series in Matthew 18, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture. We're gonna take the next five weeks and deeply think about how we are to relate to each other as a church 
the attitudes that we should possess, the approaches that we should have towards one another, and the actions that are necessary for us as Christians to take up in regard to our relationships with each other, especially when we're taught in a world to just cancel each other, even when we're hurt. This chapter as a whole is a chapter that is emerging from the context of conflict. There, there is some disruptive stuff going on with Jesus and his disciples. And so when Jesus begins to teach in this, when he begins to address the question that the disciples raise in verse 1, he, he is really at the tipping point of what's been going on with the disciples. Now, Matthew 18.1 is the setting for the whole of Jesus' teaching here in the entire chapter of 18. It's a question that the disciples come to him with. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, and from there, Jesus begins to talk about their relationships to one another and, and to others uh, in the world. And in fact, the entire chapter, except for verse 21, is Jesus' words. It's one of his longest discourses of teaching. The question that the disciples raise is one of competition and eagerness to promote themselves. There's, there's just been this, this emerging, growing sense of separation among the disciples. And, and, it's, and it's really come between the way that they perceive one another. They're looking at one another and they're seeing it, there seems to be uh, some structure here, a hierarchy. How, how does this work out? Peter, in chapter 16, had been the one to declare, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so that all of a sudden set Peter just a little bit above all the other disciples. It was like he was the first one to have the, the, the awakening and the insight of who Jesus was. That maybe ran, uh, rubbed a few disciples a little bit the wrong way. And then just a little bit later, uh, in, in, this, in the same context here, Jesus takes, he specifically takes Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up onto the mountain where he is transfigured and displays his glory before them. They see Jesus in his radiant beauty. At the same time Jesus is there with his, these three disciples, these, these special three, the rest of the disciples are down in town and, and a, a person comes to them, a dad comes to them and says, my son is possessed by a demon and he's hurting himself. Can you, can you heal him? Can you cast this demon out? And, and so they try, but they, they fail. They can't. So when Jesus comes down the mountain with his special three disciples, they're, they're asking for help and trying to figure out what's going on, and Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith in him. You, you can just say, I mean, put yourself in their shoes. You can just sense for just a moment, who are these three guys? Why do they get to go up on the mountain? Why we're the ones struggling with the demon-possessed boy and having a hard time here about it. And then we get rebuked when Jesus shows up again. And then they go to Capernaum. They get to, to Peter's hometown, Jesus' town, and the taxes come paid. Somebody asked Peter, why, why doesn't your, your master, why doesn't your rabbi, why doesn't he pay the, the temple tax? And he says, well, he does in fact. And Jesus miraculously provides the income, the money needed for that temple tax to Peter through a fishing expedition. Again, Peter gets to be the one up front enjoying the benefits of a really close relationship with Jesus. And so you can just sense, and, and there's a lot of other things happening in there that the other gospel stories and narratives tell us about, but there's this rivalry happening now among the disciples. Peter's always getting the perks and the best jobs and the amazing insights. You can just hear it, like, aren't we all disciples? I mean, should there be a little bit more egalitarian approach to this? Aren't we all called by Jesus? Like, why is he the one getting all the wins? 
So it seems like the pot had finally boiled over, and Matthew writes at this time, that this moment when conflict could just blow up the whole thing, they come and they lay it all out. Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They just, they don't want any more ambiguity. They want a name, okay? They want to know where they rank. So Jesus, let's lay it out here. Just go ahead and tell us, Peter's number one, greatest in heaven, and then y'all can fight it out for, you know, two through 12, and we'll just see how that all goes. And they're like, we want to know, where do we stand? Where do we rank? Who is the greatest? But notice how Jesus answers their question. Instead of giving them an answer about who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is, he reframes the whole situation and points out what I believe is the essential attribute necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he do? He, this is verse two. He, he calls to him a child. He, he must be in a home or an environment where there were children around, and, and he calls out the name of, of, a, of a, little, a little boy, and he says, come here. Come here, just come be here. He calls a child, and it says he put the child, he put him in the midst of them. So, so as the disciples are debating around this, as they want to know where they stand on the depth chart of greatness in the kingdom of God, he puts a child in the very middle of the, of the room, and this is what he says in verse 3, truly I say to you. So with authority, he's saying, listen up, like this is really, really important and you need to hear it. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Just deeply consider here what Jesus is saying. Unless you turn, that is to change. And the action of changing is that you are changed from the inside out. Unless you are changed by a work of God on you, unless a radical new thing happens in your heart and you take up a different passion and life, being in the kingdom, Jesus says, isn't even on the table. Repentance is necessary. Rebirth, regeneration, being born again is necessary. The Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, must come and make you alive and new again. You see, you can't have affections and love for God and a changed heart unless you are born again. So Jesus says, unless you turn, unless you, you're changed from, from inside out by work of God on you, you'll, you'll be pursuing the things of this world always. Unless you turn from your sin, unless you turn from your pursuit of this world's ways and this world's desires and turn towards Christ, unless you put your hope and faith in him, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. So he says, turn and become like children. When Christ works within us and changes us, he, he, he creates within us a new reality. Now, now when he says to become like children, does he mean that we start acting really goofy and childish and, and begin to do just silly things and run around amok and crazy? No, no, when Jesus tells us to become like children, he is telling us something about the state of ourself. In ancient times, children were not highly esteemed. They, they weren't looked upon highly. Children were seen as a nuisance. In many ways, they weren't even considered human or fully human until they reached adolescence. Children were weak, vulnerable, needy, hardly significant at all. In fact, the Greek word for child is, a, is neutral. It's not even gendered. It's not masculine or feminine. The kid was an it until they became something in society. Children were just humble beings. And that's what Jesus says it takes to enter the kingdom of God, to be changed and to become like children, not great, but humble. 
See, in Jesus' kingdom, greatness is defined by humility. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think it's really profound that this is where Jesus starts in identifying our relational problems. You see, we're just busy jockeying around for position and status and value and acceptance, and we want to be the big deal. We have our pride and our egos, and they all get in the way, and all that happens is it makes a mess of our relationships. Trying to be the most important trying to be the smartest person in the room, trying to be the VIP of life, what it does is it kills relational unity and love. Putting ourselves above everybody else, it's actually anti-kingdom of God. So Jesus starts in talking about our relationships with bringing us to a posture that will carry our relationships through in peace. He calls us to humility. Humility is the defining characteristic of those who are in the kingdom of God. The greatest are the most humble. They're the ones who stoop down and serve everyone else. So the question here I think for us to ask this morning is how do we become like children? How how do we become defined by humility in our own lives? And I think there's two answers that Jesus gives to this question this morning. The first one is this, that we would pursue dependence instead of power. That we would become people of dependence instead of people seeking power. Verse four is really the heart of what Jesus is after. He says, whoever humbles himself, whoever humbles himself like this child, remember he's got the kid right there in the middle of the room with them. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's imagine this, this little boy just standing right there. I mean, he just doesn't have anything that would elevate him to the heights of society and prominence. Maybe he's a six-year-old boy, just, just kind of there, and he was having fun with his friends and playing, but the, now he's in the middle of this, and he just, why would anybody take notice of him? That little, that little boy is reliant on others to provide for him. He has to have others protect him, He's got to have others promote his well-being and flourishing. I mean, just all across the board, they've got to care for him. And he can be dependent. He can be even needy on the supply and care of of others. I mean, that's the picture here. Jesus wants us to be this way towards him, utterly dependent, even desperately needy for his provision and protection and care for us. I don't know about you, but, but I think one of the things that we are taught in our culture, in our world, especially as children, is that we should not be reliant on or dependent on anyone or anything else. We need to figure out how to make our own way in the world. And, and we cannot portray any sense of weakness or ignorance or dependence on anybody else. Our American culture trains us. The American dream, if you will, is to build a base of power and strength in our own lives from which we will operate well in the world independently. And that that portrayal, that training, has seeped into even how we think about it spiritually. We believe the statement, God helps those who help themselves. Except, friends, that's not in the Bible at all. Jesus did not say that. 
We have that statement in our culture because Benjamin Franklin copied the Greek mythology and put it in Poor Richard's Almanac. That's an American posture, not a Christian posture. You see, God doesn't help those who help themselves, the strong, the powerful, the self-made, the pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap kind of person. The Scripture shows us that God inclines himself and helps the weak, the unable, the incapable, the humiliated, the lowly. God helps those who are humble like children. Those are the ones who have God's attention and ear. I mean, Mary, the mother of, of Jesus, she was the one who sang it when it was announced to her by the angel that she was pregnant with the Messiah. She says in Luke 1, He, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Our world tells us, keep rising, keep being powerful, keep being great. And Mary's prayer says God's going to turn it all upside down. He's going to exalt those who are humbled. Or God proclaimed it this way in Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one he says I have my eyes turned to. The person who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, being in the kingdom of God is a matter of humility, not the pursuit of power and importance and climbing a ladder of spiritual success to gain God's attention. Being in the kingdom of God is not about earning it by our own power and strength. It's being by dependent and receiving it by God's grace and love. There's a significant place, uh, at least in my mind, in the city of Rome called the Scalia Santa, or the Holy Stairs. These are 28 white marble steps that, according to, to tradition, were the staircase that led up to Pilate's palace in Jerusalem. Uh, there are the stairs that... that Tradition holds that Jesus both went up to be tried by Pilate and then descended down to his crucifixion. For well over 500 years, the Roman Catholic Church has taught that a person can go to the holy stairs in Rome, ascend the staircase on their knees, one by one, where at the top, if they give an offering and say their prayers, the church will declare their sins forgiven and their souls redeemed from any time in a place falsely called purgatory. So they teach and believe that spiritual power and prominence is given to those who make a pilgrimage to Rome, ascend the stairs on their own work, earn the merit of a good work, and gain an indulgence and freedom. We might think, well, yeah, right? Like you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You should, you should earn your way. But again, that's not God's way. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus teaches and of what he did. That is antithetical to the gospel itself. We cannot ascend our way to God and earn our way by our own merits, by our kingdom status, by our good works, by our own power. No, no, the kingdom of God is for children, those who are helpless, dependent, weak, who can't climb the stairs on their own, powerless. The stairs tell us that Christ ascended them, but the gospel shows us that Christ descended to them for us. The scripture says that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be tight-fisted about, 
but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, humility is the ethic of the kingdom of God, life. We become humble by living with absolute dependence on God's grace, not our own efforts to grasp for and to gain power. We must become like children, turn and become like children. We must pursue dependence instead of power. But Jesus says the second way that we become defined by humility in our lives is to practice loving care instead of introducing temptation. Here in verses 5 and 6, Jesus makes a comparison, a contrast, a comparison. He said there are going to be two ways about it. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, well, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. There are two ways about it. On one hand, you can receive such a child. The idea of receiving here is to welcome, it's to be open-armed, it's to to bring into your life and to care for and to to not be put off by these little dependent ones. It's a humbling work, I think, to, to be caring for and welcoming and serving those who are needy and dependent, serving little ones like children. As many of you who are parents know, there is toil that comes with having kids, especially when they're really little. I mean, let's be honest here. Little kids, close your ears for a second. Kids are a mess. They are. I mean, I had a ton of fun yesterday at the Trunk or Treat, but every one of those little kids that came by was just kind of a messy, scrubby little dude. There they were. I know I'm talking about some of your kids. They're cute, but you know. And his parents, it's not like there's a huge reward or return on investment that comes with caring for little children. It's not like you get $100 every time you change a diaper, right? That just doesn't happen. I was curious, and so I looked, uh, uh, I looked up some research. Um, there's a, a think tank called the Brookings Institution, and they did a study to, to try and determine how much does the, Ameri- the average American middle-income family with two children spend to raise a child basically from birth up to age 17. But what does that cost us? Their study revealed $310,605 was the estimate. Two kid home for 17 years. I mean, we're not even including college in that yet. That's a steep cost. And yet Jesus here, like in teaching us about humility, he's saying this is where true greatness is. The person who is humble towards others, who receives, even welcomes, dependent, needy ones such as children, they're really welcoming and receiving Jesus himself. That's the humble kind of heart that's necessary for the kingdom of God. And and Jesus isn't just talking about kids here exclusively. In verse 6, he puts it on the other hand. He he says, whoever causes one of these little ones, you you can welcome the dependent and the needy and the helpless and the ignorable ones, or you can be tripping them up and causing them to sin. I mean, notice how Jesus here changes the language. He talks about children in verse 5, whoever receives one such child. But in verse 6, he says one of these little ones. And that's not just a reference to the little children, but it's a, it's a, a, a term that is used to speak of those who are what we would call and consider little people in the world today. Whoever receives one 
welcome, in my name welcomes me, but whoever causes one of these little ones, these weak ones, these dependent ones, who believe in me to sin, well, it would be better if they had a great millstone fastened around their neck, took a cruise out in the ocean, jumped in, and drowned in the sea. Jesus says we've got to care for the little ones of this world, the little people of this world. Well, who are those little people? I think Tom Wright, uh, an English uh, theologian, he, he gets it right when he says this, those who are weak and vulnerable at other times of life, they are the cripples, the chronically sick, the elderly, the infirm, refugees, women in many cultures, any who find themselves on the human scrap heap that our world throws people on when it can't think of what else to do with them. The people that we would say, I forgot they existed. You see, the pursuit of greatness doesn't have room for these kinds of people. We forget they exist. But what Jesus is saying here is that these people, these little people, matter. They matter so much that by our neglect, we can be means of their own stumbling and fall as well. We say, whoa, whoa, whoa. If I don't believe they exist, I mean, if I just don't have anything to do with them, how can I be liable? How can I be to blame or cause them to stumble? It's because when we don't see them and when we don't care for them and when we don't welcome them, we are putting up barricades to the gospel and to Christ and we are making conditions for them to jump through to get to the gospel of Christ. We put up barricades and we, we, we create conditions. We say, you know what? If you perform well, then I'll help you. If you clean up yourself, then I'll give you my support. If you show a track record of integrity now, and pulling yourself up by the bootstrap and doing things the right way, then I will serve you and bless you. Jesus says if you get that way and put conditions and barriers and performance requirements on the gospel, just it would be better. I mean, it would be better if you just gone and drowned in the depths of the sea because you're hindering people from the kingdom of God. His point is this, that we should care enough about the little people in this world to actually care for them. Humility is the kind of work in the heart that values and loves and cares for even those who have no way that they can repay us or return even a fraction of what we have given. This kind of welcome is a wide-armed, open welcome to love the poor, the weak, the weary, the broken, the bottomed out. It's, it's displaying the love of Jesus because that's who he came for. Not, not a one of us had anything great going on that Jesus said, you know what, like, you're strong, you're powerful, great, on my team. Let me rescue you. Jesus came for the weary and the weak and the broken and the bottomed out and the, the overlooked and the lowly and the insignificant of the world. He came for not the spiritually powerful, but the depraved sinner. He came for you and me. So Jesus is teaching about our relationships and how we're gonna see, not a cancel culture, but a culture of peace and love and unity. He begins with what I think is the essential characteristic of his kingdom. There will be no way we can escape our cancel culture and conflict of our age apart from humility. There's no way that we can enter the kingdom of heaven without humility, acknowledging our need and crying out to our savior. We must become like children. And we must welcome children. We must welcome the little and the weak and the needy. 
and we begin to, to engage one another with this posture of humility and service and care, that's when we'll begin to see conflict end and peace and unity prevail in the church. But humility is required. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever humbles himself like the child is the greatest in the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, give us this humility that we need. Give us this dependence on you. Where there is pride, where there is a, attempts to earn and, and seeking power for ourselves and significance of our own, Lord, remove that. Where there is a lack of care, where there's closed arms and, and unwelcome, even to Christ and the gospel from among us, Lord, bring us low. Remind us of what Jesus has done on our behalf, how he humbled himself for us, died in our place, stood on our behalf. Lord, make us humble people towards you, towards one another, to the little and lost people of this world so that your love might shine forward. Help us be humble, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.